You're listening to the sermon audio from Vertical Church Triad, a vertical church in Jamestown, North Carolina. For more info on our service times and location, visit us at www.verticalchurchtriad.org. You are loved. The music you heard the second time, a moment ago, not the first time, the music you heard the second time, it's from George Friedrich Handel's Messiah. It is the most famous classical music in the world. Um, it's performed thousands of times every year at Christmas. Uh, raise your hand. Just curious. Raise your hand if you've ever been uh, to a performance. Have you ever been to a performance where you saw like just... All right, some of you need to get cultured, all right? I mean, I grew up listening to Handel's Messiah. I love the Messiah. Yeah, yeah. Dumb jock Matt. Like, I love that kind of music. Like, I play it all the time. And let me share with you some interesting facts about George Handel, the composer, that you obviously you didn't know based upon the number of hands that were just up. In 1741, Handel was facing really a stormy season in life. Um, he had just declared bankruptcy. He was experiencing some physical pain. Um, basically, there were people who, because he was a Christian composer, they were seeking to sabotage his career. And, and he was, of course, the composer of one of the most famous pieces of classical music, and he was referred to as the German nincompoop. Remember that name? Nincompoop? <laughs> Haven't heard that one in a while. Well, that's what they called him, the German nincompoop. By 1737, his opera company had gone bankrupt, and he had suffered a mild stroke. And really, he was battling a great amount of depression until... He was delivered by the Messiah. Interesting time in 1737. Secularism and humanism um, was on the rise in England. Charles Jennings, a, a friend of Handel, he was a devout Anglican. He was also a member of the society. Um, he was a member of the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. And he, he was actually the person who penned the lyrics for the Messiah. And basically, his whole goal of penning these lyrics was to use music as an opportunity to change the hearts of the secular culture. So after he arranged the entire Christian message in a single piece, he brings it to Handel, and he asks Handel, of course, to compose it to, to music. And in 24 days, Handel composes 260 pages of what many consider to be the greatest classical piece ever, the Messiah. When he gets to the Hallelujah Chorus, his assistant, Handel's assistant, finds him in tears saying, I think I did see heaven open in the very face of God. Hear that? I think I did see heaven open in the very face of God. Of God. You know, Vertical Church, that's our goal this Christmas season. Like Handel, we want to see Jesus more clearly so that we might worship him more fervently. Did you catch that? That's the goal of our Isaiah 9 6 series, this baby with four names. We want to see Jesus more clearly so that we worship him more fervently. And today we are in week two of a sermon series called The Baby with Four Names. And last week we discovered the name, that names, they communicate character in Scripture. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah gives an amazing prophetic description of what Jesus would be like and what his purpose would be. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, if you're not there, you can go there. I'm going to read it to you. It's also on the screen. Isaiah writes this, For to us, I love that us, don't you? This is for you, Christian. This is for you, follower of Jesus. For to us, this is your gift this Christmas. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called, say it with me, Wonderful Counselor. Next, Mighty God. Next, everlasting Father, and then finally, Prince of Peace. You know, we hear that verse, probably heard it for a long time. We, we hear it at Christmas season through Handel's Messiah, right? And it, it just kind of like rolls off your tongue, but put yourself for a moment 
in the position of the original audience. In chapter 8, Isaiah, if you flip back, he warns about the incoming invasion of Israel. In the description of this invasion, two words, gloom and doom. That's what's about ready to happen to Israel. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So, that's what's going on here. And in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet gives Israel some comfort by speaking of this coming Messiah. This coming Messiah, as we said last week, it's the fulfillment of what is called the Davidic covenant, which says that a child would be born, establish a kingdom, and that kingdom would endure forever. And Isaiah, he gives this baby, this Messiah, he gives him four names. And what we must understand about these names is that these four names are the essence of what this baby would be. Last week we saw that he's the wonderful counselor, meaning comfort comes from Christ. This week we're going to see that Jesus is mighty God. The Hebrew word that Isaiah uses for mighty God, you might want to write this down, kind of interesting. It's El Gibor. El Gibor. You're probably familiar with the word El. El means Jehovah. El means God. El is the last syllable of Emmanuel, right? What's Emmanuel mean? I mean, this is Emmanuel. Emmanuel is this Christmas season. Emmanuel is the celebration of with us God or God with us. But if you break down Emmanuel, it's really with us God. El means Jehovah. El means God. In Isaiah 9, what Isaiah is doing by using this name El, mighty God, he's testifying to the fact that this baby that's going to be born in a manger, he is deity. He's everything that we just sung about a moment ago. And he says that Jesus, he is El, here's the second word, Gibor. El Gibor, meaning he is God Almighty. He is mighty God. Now, when we hear that word mighty, right? We hear that word mighty. We hear these words all the time. We really don't think much of them. Or we think or we define these words like through our vocabulary, maybe, or what it means to us. Words have meaning. They have meaning. Words have weight, so watch what you say. But words have meaning, and we have to understand what is the Hebrew meaning, though, of this word mighty. Because we'll use this word mighty, and, and sadly, we saw the mighty storm that swept through the Midwest this week. I, I hope we're praying for these families. That's a picture in many ways of God's might. Powerful. Gibor, in fact, interestingly, it's a root which is, uh, um, or, or, or the root of the word, excuse me, is commonly associated with warfare. And it has everything to do with strength and, and the vitality of a successful warrior. In Hebrew, what mighty means, it means powerful, it means strong, it means brave, it means warrior, hero, a mighty man, which means ultimately that this baby that Isaiah was prophesying about 750 years before Christ, about 750 B.C., Isaiah's saying he's going to be a deliverer. He's going to be a rescuer. He is going to be a warrior, a successful warrior, an irresistible champion. He's going to be the all-powerful one. And so by using this name El Gabor for the baby in the manger, Isaiah is letting us know these things right here. The same God who created the sea is the same God who silenced the sea. He's saying that the same God who said, let there be light, is the same God who came to be the light of the world. He's saying that the same God who delivered Israel from Egyptian tyranny is the same God who delivered all of humanity from sin's tyranny. He's saying the same God who created man is the same God who was crucified for man. The same God who fed Israel in the wilderness is the same God who fed the 5,000 on the shore. The same God who created the world is the same God who died for the world. This I am right here, this El Gabor, this baby in the manger, he arrived, church family, with mighty power. Mighty power. 
And just as Jesus has wisdom to provide comfort in life's difficulties as the wonderful counselor, he also has the power to overcome life's difficulties as mighty God. Did you catch that? Just as the baby in the manger has wisdom to provide comfort in life's difficulties, as wonderful counselor, he also has the power to overcome your life difficulties as mighty God. So if you're a note taker, here's the big idea. The Almighty has the ability to change your life trajectory. Isn't that a good one? Come on, say it with me. I, I love this right here, man. Say it with me. Here we go. The Almighty has the ability to change my life trajectory. And really, this is the whole point of Christmas. This is it right here. This is the point of Christmas. This is the point of El, God. This is the point of Emmanuel, God with us. It's all about your new life trajectory. And last week, we looked at three reasons to make Jesus your wonderful counselor. Today, we're going to look at three reasons to know Jesus as your mighty God. And like last week, when we looked at three stories that revealed Jesus as a wonderful counselor, today I'm going to share three stories that give you reason to believe that the Almighty has the ability to change your life trajectory. And the three reasons are fine through three stories in the life of Jesus. Number one, first reason to know Jesus as your mighty God. He has the power to overcome your personal difficulties. Trust in Him. He has the power to overcome your personal difficulties. Trust in Him. All of us experience difficulties in life. Families in our church, or I referenced it in my pastoral prayer, there are families in our church who are experiencing great difficulties right now. If you did not receive the text messages this week, those prayer requests that we sent out, stop by the info center, get on that. We need to be praying for our church family. There are some hurting people in our family today, and I hope you've been praying frequently and fervently for these families. But here's the reality. All of us experience seasons of difficulties. There are financial difficulties. There are health difficulties. There are marriage difficulties. There are parenting difficulties. Some of you right now, you don't know how you're going to pay for the Christmas gifts underneath the tree. You don't know what to do about the spouse who has just left you. You don't know what to do about the strained relationship with the child. You don't know how you're going to handle the serious sickness. Just like Israel, you have a real threat in your life, and it's looking like gloom and doom. And this morning, if you know Christ as your Savior, you have a God. Listen, I hope you hear this, and I hope you believe this. You have a God that is able to overcome your personal difficulties. I love that word, overcome. Meaning, my God has the, the ability to succeed in dealing with my life problems and circumstances. There's nothing in my life, there's no situation, there's no sickness, there's no circumstance that is too difficult for El Gabor. Any problem I face, no matter the difficulty, he can defeat it for me. And this morning, any problem you have, any problem you have, he can prevail because he is Gabor, the mighty warrior, the irresistible force that cannot be stopped. He is deliverer. He is rescuer. He is the all-powerful one. He is the irresistible champion. Do you believe that? Like three of you do. Do you believe that? Yeah. Yeah. In one way, this truth is best showcased about our Savior. It's found in, in the Gospel of Mark. Turn to Mark chapter 4. The context of the three stories we're looking at this morning is that Jesus has just done a whole lot of teaching, and now he's getting ready to put his teaching to a test for his disciples. Jesus wants to know something about his followers. He wants to know something not just about these followers that we're going to be talking about this morning. He wants to know something about these followers that are in this room today. He wants to know if our head has penetrated into our heart. Tracking with me? And so what does Jesus do? Knowing that a storm is coming, Mark chapter 4, he's like, all right, boys, let's go. Let's get out of here. And what he does is he says, get in the boat, and we're going to go across the Sea of Galilee. Now, when you hear that word, Sea of Galilee, if you're new to church, 
Or maybe you've even been in church for a long time. You've never, maybe, maybe you've never been to Israel, or maybe you just aren't into history, or you really don't care about some of the stuff that I share with you from time to time. Um, but the Sea of Galilee, it's really not a sea. It's a freshwater lake. I've been there. It's about seven, six, 700 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by mountains, and it kind of sits in a bowl. Every day in the summer, and every day in the winter, like it's like clockwork, every day between noon and six o'clock, there's going to be a severe windstorm. And it's a quick storm, but it's a violent storm. The, the, the winds come down from the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights are up, up towards Lebanon. And I've, I've been there. I stayed right on the base of Lebanon. I've stayed right in this region. And um, the Golan Heights, I think, are like maybe 10,000 feet. I mean, they're pretty, pretty solid-sized mountains. And, of course, the wind comes down from the Golan Heights and goes into this bowl 682 feet below sea level, and there's these massive, violent, severe windstorms. And the wind comes down so hard and it creates these waves on this freshwater lake. And a freshwater lake is like, it's a, it's a great place to do fishing. That's why, the, that's why all the disciples were fishermen. And I won't get into all that, but just trust me on that. Great place to do f- fishing. And, and, and basically, these winds would create like these 10-foot swells. I was actually in Israel. We're getting ready. Uh, I was just reminded of this. Um, we were getting ready to, to actually get in a boat to go across the Sea of Galilee, but, but a storm came in. We had to cancel the whole trip. Like, you just don't go on that water when there's a storm. Well, in verse 37, one of those type storms hits the disciples. Look at verse 37. It says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, of course, this is purposeful. This is all a part of the plan of the Almighty, El Gabor, King Jesus. He's purposely, hear this, hear this, please hear this. He's purposely putting them in the storm. And as he purposely puts them in the storm, he's going to remind them that he is in total control. Total control. Why is he doing this? He's doing this because he wants to know if what's going on here has penetrated here. He wants to know if his disciples can trust him in the storms of life. So, what does he do during the storm? You know the story if you grew up in church. If you're new to this, it's pretty comical. Like, El Gabor, the Almighty One, also had a good sense of humor. What does he do? He goes to sleep. Look at verse 38. They wake him, and they see to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. All right, come on. Come on. Help me out here. Wait, wait. Let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. (laughs) You're an overachiever, and I like it. Raise your hand if you think that's a stupid question by by, by Peter. Do you care that we are perishing? Raise your hand if you think that's a stupid question. Well, those of you with your hands up, be proud of yourself because you got it right, and the rest of them got it wrong. It's a stupid question. It's a ridiculous question. But what I find interesting is when we are fearful and in the middle of trials, right? Because trials create fear. They're in a trial, they're in a storm, there's fear. This is what happens. The wheels sometimes fall off, right? We start thinking things that are not true about God. Do you care? God my prodigal child, my sick wife. Have you forgotten me? Do you love me? And the whole time we're, we're questioning God and we fail to remember the promises of God. That's the disciples in this situation. The promises in verse 35, we're going to the other side. We're going to the other side. 
Interestingly, though, he never said, hey, boys, we're going to the other side. We're going to cruise the Sea of Galilee, and it's going to be a nice, comfortable time together. Relax. We're going to have some fun. Never said that. He just told them where they were going. But, of course, in the middle of the trial, our minds, they, they run wild. You really have to control your mind when you're in trials, just so you know. Like, you, we were talking about this in my small group meeting this week with some of the guys. You are your greatest counselor, just so you know. You speak to yourself more than anybody else. You're your greatest counselor. Well, Jesus is the greatest counselor, but, but you're the counselor that does the most counseling to you, unfortunately. And the whole time, they are questioning God, and they're failing to remember the promises of God. Their minds are running wild. That's the disciples. And the great danger in this whole story, just so you know, it's not the winds and the waves. We look at the story and we're like, oh man, they're in trouble. Their circumstance, like the winds and the waves, that's not the great danger. The great danger is the hearts of the disciples. The great danger is here's these guys who are hearing all the teaching and yet they still lack faith. They still lack trust. They still don't know who Jesus is when they're in the storm. Warren Wearsby, he says this, he says, our greatest problems are within us, not around us. That's, that's good right there. Our greatest problems, our greatest problems, and some of you are like, man, you obviously don't understand what my problem is today. Well, we've all been through those problems, but our greatest problem it's not around us, it's within us. And the disciples, they had all the teaching, but they still lacked faith. So what does Jesus do to grow their faith and show his love, right? Because they're like, don't you care? Don't you love me? Aren't you concerned? What does he do? He calms the sea instantly, and then he says these words. Look at verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Like, you've been with me. You've seen some of the healings already. Like, you see the water turn into the wine. You, you saw me help the lame man walk. Like, you've been around the teachings. Why no faith? And some of you today, you're, you're facing a storm in your life. Let me just say, there's, there's typically, I kind of break it down this way, and I don't know if this is right or wrong. This is just the way I think. This is the way my mind thinks. This isn't like, this is just like extra. This isn't like biblical. But I, I feel like there's like two types of storms that go on in my life. There's like the obstacles and the challenges of regular life. You know what I'm talking about? Like the obstacles and challenges of regular life, and they're kind of like always around. You know what I'm saying? It's like the financial setbacks that kind of come up and go down, you know, and the relational struggles and all those like small little obstacles and challenges. Like they're not going to crush you, but it's still a trial. It's still a storm. And then there are the trials and tests. That's kind of like the second category. So you have obstacles and challenges. That's like all the time. Then you have like these severe trials and tests that come just every so often. Those are the hard seasons in life. That's like the severe sickness and the unexpected death. That's what we're talking about there. And like the disciples, the storms that we sometimes find ourselves in It, it, let's be honest, it creates fear. We lack faith. And I just want to remind you that your Savior who lived and died and was resurrected for you is mighty God. Mighty God, El Gabor. He has the power to help you in the present and overcome the storms around you. He can heal the sick. He can restore the marriage. He can return the prodigal. But here's what we must understand, and this is super important, super important, because we're all about the deliverance from the trial. But more often than overcoming the storms around you, what he chooses to do is overcome the storm within you. Did you catch that? That's what he's going for. 
His concern, he has concern about what's going on around you, but his greatest concern is what's going on within you, meaning he's more concerned about your spiritual condition than he is your physical condition. He wants to know if what you know about him is in your head or in your heart. He wants to know, do you trust him in everything? 2021 has been a year of difficulty for me personally. I'm no different than you. I have health problems, and I have financial problems, and I have relationship problems, and by far the toughest year of my life. And you know about the unexpected death of my brother this past fall. And there was one week in particular, about four or five weeks ago, I was just really struggling. I was really struggling. And I'm kind of like duking it out with God. Now, just so you know, I'm a charismatic with a seatbelt, okay? Some of you are going to get nervous here. I'm charismatic with a seatbelt. And I'm kind of duking it out with God, and I'm talking to God. And God's like, Matt, you just need to trust me. And I'm like, I know I need to trust you, but like, what does that mean? God, I need more than just Christianese right now. Like, I don't know how to trust you right now. And immediately he said these things to me. He said, number one, turn to me. Turn to me. When the storms of life hit hard, there are a lot of things that we turn to. We turn to our counselor or our pastor or our friends or our small group member. We might even turn to a hobby or to work in order to like, get our mind off the problem and stay busy. Some of us go to an addiction in order to numb the pain. It might be clicking on the link. It might be grabbing the drink like... We turn to something. We turn to a lot of things when we're in trouble, but we need to learn from the disciples who were caught in the sea, who were about to die, like, you got to turn to God. you got to turn to God. And then the second thing that God said to me, it's just, just like this. He's like, turn to me, release it to me. Release it to me. Now, let me give you a visual of what it looks like, okay? Every, eyes up here. This is what it looks like to release your problem to God. Do I need to do that again? Did you catch it? Here's what it is, because, like, here's the reality. We want to be in control, don't we? We want to be in control of the situation. Like, hey, I'll handle this, God. I got this. I need to work a little harder. I need to do whatever it takes, because, by golly, I'm a man, and I'm an American, and I'm going to figure this thing out. I'm pretty competent, just so you know. I believe that about myself. Some of you are like, you need to stop telling yourself lies. Remember that whole counselor thing? (laughs) But we need to release it to him. Fully let go, man. And the way we release it to him is through prayer and pouring our heart out to him and communicating with him. And then the third thing God said to me, he's like, turn to me, release to me. And then he said this, understand it may be hard. Understand it may be hard. And this is like I'm telling you. Like, I remember where I was. It's just like boom, boom, boom. Because oftentimes, here's the reality. When we encounter the stormy seasons in life, we think that because we have turned to God and released it to Him, the situation will stop. Don't we? You with me? Did you catch that? Hey, I've turned to you. I've released it to you. Why hasn't this situation changed? I'm trusting you, God. We're in this together. Why is the storm still raging? And then he said this to me, submit to my plan. Submit to my plan. That word submit, it's a powerful word. It's a word that sometimes we don't like. Sometimes we're married to people, ladies, who it's really difficult to submit to them. They're just difficult husbands to live with. It's hard. And like, you have to choose to place yourself under their authority sometimes. That's hard. It's hard to submit to a boss that is unfair or plays favorites. It's hard to submit to any type of authority that abuses you. Like, submission is hard. The idea of yielding to the authority and the will of another, like, we naturally, we don't like doing that. 
But God's like, you need to submit to my plan. I've got a plan for your life. And then the last step, it's the hardest step, and it's the hardest step in the storm. The hardest step in the storm is always like the last step, and it's simply this, take the next step. Take the next step. And that's exactly what Jesus was wanting out of his disciples who are in the boat, and that's what he's wanting out of every disciple in this church. So oftentimes when the storms come, it's like we freeze or we back off rather than leaning into community and leaning into our faith and leaning into the body of Christ. And God is like, man, you need to take the next step. When you fully trust him, regardless of the type of storm you face, you will experience peace that passes all understanding when you trust him. The Almighty, he has the ability to change your life trajectory. Three reasons to know Jesus as your mighty God. Number one, he has the power to overcome your personal difficulties. Trust in him. Number two, he has the power. I love this. He has the power to obliterate your sinful deficiencies. Commit to him. In chapter four, Jesus shows us that he has power over the natural. That's what we just saw. Now we're going to see that he also has power over the spiritual. He's El Gabor. He's mighty God. He's got all the power. I've got the power. Remember that one? Like, we're going to be singing that in heaven, just so you know, about Jesus, not about you. He's got the power. Look at chapter 5. The disciples, they've just made it across the Sea of Galilee. See, I do stuff like that because you guys are nodding off on me. I have to be an idiot because you're sleeping, okay? Just so you know. I saw two sleepers out there, and I had to bring some humor in, okay? It's your fault. Just kidding. Love you. When you sleep in church, I love it because you're tired and you're worn out and you're still choosing to be here. So thankful for you that you would come here, for real. Look at chapter 5. Disciples, they just made it across the Sea of Galilee. They arrive on the other side. They encounter two men. They're demon-possessed. And let me just say this about demon possession and sin. We've all heard it before. Maybe you know it. Sin will take you farther than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Right? You listening? You think you can cage your sin? Just kind of let it out when the time seems right? You think you have control over your sin and you can tame your sin? You think you really can cultivate your sin? Sin will take you farther than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. And that's the story of these two men in Mark chapter 5. We don't know the exact circumstance, but they invited sin into their life and it culminated in demon possession. I'm not going to talk about demon possession today, but here's what I believe. Like demons just can't come upon you without you inviting them in. Okay? These guys had gotten to the point where they loved sin. That's the story of these two men. And, it, and their sin culminated in demon possession. When you read the text, you discover that their sin costs them everything. They have no homes. They have no friends and family. There's like no one to hang out with for the holidays. There's, there's, they had no dignity and self-respect. I mean, these dudes are naked in public. They had no peace in life. They had no purpose in life. They had no self-control. They're cutting themselves. They're howling. They're acting like wild beasts. They're scaring people. There, there's another account of this same story in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, and, and it says, like, no one would even go near these men. They were, they were isolated. Completely left alone. And, and when we hear that, it's like, oh, no big deal. But just do some digging on your own when prisoners get placed in solitary confinement for long periods of time. Like, you go crazy. No one wants to go near these men. Like, they're the worst of the worst. They've given up, or they've been given up on by their own family. And what do we see in the story, though? We see that El Gabor goes to great lengths. And he goes out of his way. And he 
goes through the storm to go reach these men. Wow. Jesus will go to great lengths in order to rescue and redeem the worst of sinners. And we know that because he came to earth, humbled himself, born in a manger, and culminates in death on a cross. Great lengths. Notice what happens in verses 6 and 7. Really interesting. One of the demon-possessed men, they, they see Jesus... And, and he's like, and I'm going to paraphrase verses 6 and 7. I think it's on the screen. Yeah, it's on the screen. And he's like, why are you here and why are you bothering us? Why are you here? Why are you bothering us? But then look what he, he bows down before Jesus. Why is he doing that? Because he recognizes Jesus as, say it with me, El Gibor. Even the demons recognize, even in their sinfulness, that he's God Almighty. Look verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell. What does Jesus do next? I love this. We have an awesome Savior, just so you know. Just so you know, we have an awesome Savior. What does he do next? He obliterates both men's sin. And I told you I like that word obliterate because it's this idea of he, di- he utterly destroys it. He just wipes it out. Sadly, the before and after pictures of of that plant that we saw in Kentucky. That's what he does. He just, but he, like, everything's gone, though. There's nothing left. He he wipes the slate clean. What does he say? Verse 8. For he was saying to him, come out. Come out. Wipes it out. He obliterates it. And the unclean spirits... Verse 13, came out, and they entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000. They rushed down the sea bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. What I love about this passage right here is not only does the Almighty God have the ability to wipe sinful slates clean, but He gives a new heart condition. Look at verse 14. It says, the herdsmen fled and told it to the city, and people come, see what's going on. Verse 15, and they came to Jesus... This is so amazing. They come to Jesus. They see the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, like a multitude of demons, and he's sitting there, not, not, not crazy man, and he's clothed, he's not naked, and he's in his right mind, right? And you would think, here's the thing, here's the thing. You would think that at this point, the people that showed up there would be like, Hail King Jesus! You are El Gabor. Like, we got it. You are the mighty God. And you would think that just like the demons, their response would be, we bow before you, King Jesus. You are the long-awaited Messiah. But what does it say they did? What does it say they did? This is nuts. They were afraid. They were afraid. They missed him. I look at this passage, here's what I see. What, see. what Satan seeks to destroy, Jesus has the power to deliver. That's what we're seeing right here, just so you know. That's why we say, Hail King Jesus, mighty God. What Satan seeks to destroy, Jesus has the power to deliver. If every Wednesday I get an email from Paul Tripp's ministry. If you don't get it, you should sign up for it. It's pretty good. I think it's called like, I don't know. I'm going to make something up. It's called Wednesday in the Word. I don't know what it's called. But sign up for it. Go to Paul Tripp Ministries. It's a weekly email that you'll get on Wednesday. He wrote this. He, he, he steals all my stuff. He steals all my stuff. That's the problem with Paul Tripp. You can never trust him. He steals my stuff. No, but he's doing an Advent thing. And uh, he did Isaiah 9, verse 6, this week. And he writes this about the Almighty God. It's on the screen. Sin doesn't just, you might want to take a picture of this. Sin doesn't just reduce us to fools. It also renders us unable. So Jesus came to do by divine power what we could not do for ourselves. 
Sin causes us all to be unable to be what God designed us to be and do what God created us to do. So Jesus would unleash his power to defeat sin and death and then empower us to desire and do what we would not be able to do without his power working in and through us. Amen? That's what happened to the two men. Sin reduced them to fools. They were totally unable to have fellowship with God. They're miserable. They're sinful. They were not who they were supposed to be. But good God Almighty unleashes His power and He defeats sin. And the whole point is that they might live committed lives to Him. And that's exactly what happened to the two demon-possessed men. They confessed, they believed, and they committed. Look at verse 18. It says, The men who had been possessed with demons begs Jesus that he might be with him. He's like, I just want to be, on, be with you. You're God Almighty. I want to be with you. And what does Jesus say? Verse 19, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. A good life lesson right here. I, I, hey, listen. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen, let's say it. Ready? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Until then, here's what you do. You go and tell how much the Lord has done for you. You tell people about the second advent. You tell people that the King is again coming. You tell people that you have the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and you have the Prince of Peace. And you explain what the implications of each of those names of King Jesus is for you. That's our responsibility until come Lord Jesus. And that's what these men do. And they share how God Almighty had mercy. In verse 20, they proclaimed. They proclaimed. They proclaimed how much Jesus had done and everybody marveled because they were committed. They were committed. When Jesus obliterates your sin... The response is to commit to him, vertical church. And listen, this morning, today, these men's story can be every person's story. Because Christ is God, he can forgive every person's sin. He, any person in this room, it doesn't matter what you've done, he has the ability to free you from sin's rule over you and redeem you and restore you and reign in you as mighty God. But for that to happen, you need to follow the example of the men in this story, and you have to humble yourself, and you have to get low, and you have to bow to him as Savior and Lord, and you have to confess your sin. And if you do that this morning, you too will find the power of the mighty God unleashed in your life so that you can live a life of righteousness committed to Him regardless of the stormy seasons. Because you have God Almighty and He's living in you. The Almighty, church, family, the Almighty has the ability to change your life trajectory. He has the power to overcome your personal difficulties, trust in Him. He has the power to obliterate your sinful deficiencies, commit to Him, the third and final reason to know Jesus as your mighty God, he has the power to orchestrate your hopeful desires, surrender to him. He has the power to orchestrate your hopeful desires, surrender to him. We've already seen that Jesus has the power over the natural in chapter 4, over the super or over the spiritual, excuse me, in the lives of these demon-possessed men. Now we're going to see that he has the power to do the supernatural. Meaning the things that you think are impossible are possible for Jesus. I love that word orchestrate. It means to arrange or direct the elements of a situation to produce a desired effect. That's what it means to orchestrate. You're arranging or directing the elements of a situation to produce a desired effect. Now, due to the time, we can't dive fully into these last Really, there are two stories in one that are coupled together here in verses 21 through 34. However, I would encourage you, go home, read this passage, because it will give you a better understanding of the heart of Jesus, and it will move you to grow in your worship of Jesus. But briefly, let me just share the situation. Out of protection, Jesus leaves Gerasene. People are ticked. Like, they just lost 2,000 swine. Like, no more bacon. <laughs> You'd be ticked too. <laughs> so they're angry. Like, that's their income. 
That's the economy. And so he goes to the other side of the sea, and this crowd, rather than kicking him out, like they're anticipating Jesus' arrival. And this is all in one day, man. Man, I get tired preaching a sermon. This is all in one day. So anyway, he shows up, and there's, like I said, they're, they're anticipating his arrival because there's like two situations going on here. You have Jairus' daughter, and Jairus' daughter, he's a, he's a ruler, and he's got a 12-year-old daughter, Jairus' ruler, and, and he's got a 12-year-old daughter, and um, she's moments from death. Imagine that. Put yourself in that situation. You have a 12-year-old child, moments from death. And then there's this other person in the story. There's this anonymous woman. She has this incurable hemorrhage. Um, she's, because of this hemorrhage, she's, the, the text says, just do some reading on your own. Like, she's, she's out of money. She's bankrupt. She's living in poverty. And the fact that she had this uncurable disease, she would have been the outcast of the society. So she's lonely and in poverty. She's barely able to survive. She, too, is dying. Not moments from death, but most likely days from death. Both stories, Jarius and this woman, they both had a hopeful desire that Jesus would heal them. They, 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 they really, truly had the faith that Jesus could do this. Look at the text. Look at verse 23. It says, my little daughter, this is Jerry speaking, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she will be made well and live. And so Jesus goes with them. And then verse 28, here, here's the woman speaking. Um, for she said, if I just touch even his garments, I will be made well. They don't just have it here. They've got it here. So what do both parties do? They pursue Jesus. And the disabled woman, it's pretty amazing. She, she pushes through the crowd, the text says. Like there's this massive crowd. You ever get in a massive crowd and you're trying to make way in the crowd? Like a couple weeks ago, we were at like, what's that place called? Disney Springs, right? It's like this massive crowd. It's like you're just kind of like pushing your way through people. That's what this disabled woman is doing. And no doubt, like she's a mess. She's hemorrhaging. So she's like probably being persecuted as she's seeking to see Jesus. Like you would have thought she would have wanted to quit, but she keeps persevering because she has faith. People with faith will persevere. That's what we're seeing here. If I just touch him. And what does the loving father do, Jarius? What does he do? Like, he, he, he does the same thing. Like, he has this 12-year-old girl who's moments from death. Like, you don't leave the deathbed of your child. You don't do that. You're trying to savor every last moment with them. And what does Jarius do? He leaves. Why? Because they know that El Gabor, Almighty God, has the ability to direct the elements of their life situation and produce healing. He can orchestrate healing. And that's exactly what happens, verse 29. And immediately the flood, or the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Verse 34, here's Jairus' response, and he said to her, or excuse me, Jesus' response to, to this woman, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And just as Jesus is finishing healing up this woman, like put yourself on the scene, like word leaks out. Like Jairus is like, Jesus, I thought you were going with me to heal my daughter. Okay? And like, that's great. That's awesome that she's good. But he's getting nervous and like the unimaginable happens. Like word leaks out that his daughter is dead now. Look at verse 35. Your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? It's too late. Leave the guy alone. It's over. He missed it. He probably could have done it. But she's dead now. It's over. Look at verse 36. Good God Almighty, He loves us deeply, doesn't He? Jesus says to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And what does He do? He grabs a couple of the disciples and gives them a fourth lesson on faith. He resurrects a dead girl. Why can He do that? Why can He do that? Because He's El Gabor. He's mighty God. He's omnipotent in power. He has all the strength that's required to do whatever He wants that is within His will. Did you catch that? He is omnipotent. He will never go against His will. 
but he will do whatever is necessary to exercise power in order to accomplish his perfect will. So whatever you're going through in life, you can surrender to the Lord knowing that he is the almighty God and whatever he is orchestrating is within his divine will. He has not failed if you don't get healed. He has not failed if your marriage hasn't been restored. He has not failed if your prodigal has not returned. And it's not on you because of this false heretical teaching that you just didn't have enough faith. That's bullcrap. He's sovereign. He's El Gabor. He's Almighty God, and He orchestrates His sovereignty in a way that will bring Him the most glory. The first advent is about our spiritual problem. God Almighty came to defeat death so that we can be reconciled to God. Folks, that's our primary problem. The second advent is about the Almighty God eliminating our secondary problems. What are the secondary problems? No more disease, no more sickness, no more death, no more hurt. He's going to rid the world of all pain and suffering. I heard one pastor this week say it this way, the first advent brought relief from our sin, the second advent will bring, bring relief from our suffering. Isn't that good? First advent, relief from our sin. Second advent, relief from our suffering. I started the day talking about George Handel. What I failed to mention is that when his friend, Charles Jensen, brought him the lyrics that would ultimately be the liturgy of the Messiah, for 18 months, Handel allowed the lyrics to gather dust on a shelf. Until one day, Handel, he finally picks up the lyrics. And he was so moved by the Messiah that what he expected, what he told Jensen would take one year to compose, he composed it in 24 days. You see, when those who truly know the Messiah see him for who he is, they will be moved. And so often, church family, listen, even in the midst of this Christmas season, the time where the Messiah and the wonderful counselor and the mighty God and the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace, the time in which he ought to capture our attention most, we, we, we push him out. We fail to make room for him. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to stand together. So let's stand up. And through song, let's, as a church family, let's make a commitment to our Messiah that we will make room for Jesus this Christmas season so that we will be moved. Let, let's commit that right here. Let's, we're going to sing, I will make room. It's a song of commitment. Like, don't just sing, like, commit. Hey, I'm going to make room for you so that I might be moved, so that I might be moved to worship you, Lord God Almighty, regardless of the circumstance. So that I will be moved to live for you, even in the midst of this hardship. So that I might be moved to even speak about you and what you're doing, even in the hard season. Can we do that together? He's Almighty God. He's Wonderful Counselor. He's Everlasting Father. He's Prince of Peace. Let's make a commitment to him this morning through song.